the scripture verse I'm going to be preaching on, it's actually not a full verse, it's one third of a verse, it's just one clause, Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Father, as I uh, meditate upon this scripture in preparation for your table, I pray that you would uh, guide my speech and enable each one of us to appreciate the lavishness of your table, the, the generosity of your heart. Uh, we know that every issue that we face, that we tend to be anxious over, you are sufficient to provide everything we need. And so we just come to you with rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently read an article uh, that talked about the statistically incredibly high rise in anxiety and fear in America. Um, one psychotherapist by the name of Jonathan Alpert has called 2020 the year of anxiety because of all of these studies that show uh, so many people going. He speaks about the core of anxiety being uncertainty about the future. And so with his clients, he says, they're uncertain about coronavirus, about the upcoming elections, the results of social unrest, global economics, where their jobs are going to come from, how their investments are doing. And because they're isolated at home, it says that tends to exacerbate the fear and the anxiety. And because they're home more, they tend to watch the news more, which makes it even worse. <laughs> and um, so MedWeb, um, uh, WebMed, I guess it is, uh, when I looked on there, uh, there were a number of articles saying that uh, prescriptions of antidepressants have gone way up. And uh, there's also other articles that talk about illegal drugs and various drugs to calm fears that are up. So I, I tried to look at these secular humanists, see what is their answer? And uh, their answer was fourfold. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a very satisfactory answer, but here was their answer. First of all, they recommend that you go to a therapist so that he can listen to you venting your fears. They call this venting. They say it just releases, unleashes these negative emotions and you're going to feel better. I call it a racket because the anxiety comes back and it's a constant stream of income for the therapist. But anyway, the second step is to admit your feelings to a support group. And uh, in the support group, you got anxious people talking with other anxious people, trying to get rid of ang their anxieties. And all that's happening is they realize, oh, there's a whole lot more to be anxious over. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> uh, not a very good uh, solution. Third step was to see the good in yourself, to smile and turn off the news. Okay, turning off the news is probably a good idea. But smile, really? Um, see the good in yourself? Uh, I don't think so. The fourth step was to do something active. Okay, not a bad idea. Be involved in ministry. That's a, a good thing. But Psalm 23 is one of many, many passages that addresses the fears of God's people, and I think with a much, much better uh, solution than the world can possibly uh, uh, offer to people. The whole psalm really is trying to get you to quit focusing on the enemies and the problems and the ills that are in our, our society. When you focus on the problems, yeah, your anxiety is going to increase, but God causes us to focus upon his goodness, his kindness, his greatness, that he's in total control of all of our enemies. Uh, he wants us to focus on the fact that he is our shepherd. He leads us, he comforts us, he, with his rod and his staff, he guides us, he protects us. 
Uh, he says, even you don't have to pursue goodness and mercy. His goodness and mercy will pursue you. But I really especially love this phrase in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Not in the absence of my enemies, in the presence of my enemies. It's an incredibly wonderful uh, promise. God calls us to have a continual feast before him. Now, obviously, it's a metaphor of his spiritual provision in any difficult circumstances. I'm going to be applying it to the Lord's table because this is a literal feast that promises exactly the same things. And the first thing that I see is that God is the one who initiates this covenant meal. You prepare a table. The table belongs to him. The food belongs to him. He spreads the table. He invites us to the table. He sustains us. He restores us. It is all of grace. He does not invite us here because we're so good. It's the very opposite. He takes what is not good and he restores us. And it's not because we're good that we have all of these enemies. Um, it's on the contrary, sheer grace that has made us change sides. In fact, you may not have realized it, but the very first mention of grace is um, God's statement that he's going to put enmity between Satan and his seed and the woman and her seed. Now, previously, she had eaten of the fruit, and so she was entering into covenant of friendship with Satan. Now God was going to break that covenant, break that friendship, bring Eve into friendship with himself, and make Eve an enemy of Satan. So just think of it this way. Don't think of you having enemies and the church getting more and more persecution as, uh, as an evidence of lack of grace. It's actually an evidence of grace. God is for you. In fact, at the moment you got saved, he plucked you out of the enemy's camp, put you at his table, made friendship with you. You're automatically going to have enemies. And that's the second thing that I see. God doesn't just refresh the church at large. I mean, we tend to think sometimes corporately, okay, yeah, that's a promise that the church as a whole, but that word me in that phrase shows that God invites individuals to sit down at his table and enter into deep communion with himself. This is how he worded it to the church of Pergamos in Revelation 2. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now that by itself is astounding, going into the Holy of Holies and eating what no priest in the Old Testament could eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I'm not going to give an exposition of that, but I cannot think of a more personal and intimate relationship we could have with God than that. And that's stone, invitation stone to his feast, he's giving to you individually. He cares about you. He loves you. Um, and as you come to the table, you can claim that kind of intimacy and fellowship and say, Lord, I don't sense that closeness, but I claim it. In faith, I claim it as I come to this table. The third thing that I see is that God doesn't necessarily remove his enemies and our enemies from us. That would be cool if we didn't have any enemies anymore. But God says, no, it's really better for you if uh, you continue to have enemies and you learn how to be calm in my presence even though the enemies are there. And each of you does have enemies. Even if you don't have human enemies and everybody loves you, uh, the demons don't. And there is nothing that they would love more than to get you fearful. Why? Because scripture says, whatever fear chases away faith, 
Whatever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So they want to get you fearful. And you say, no, I am not going to fear God. Why should I fear when he has given me so many uh, promises? And so the point is, God does not promise to remove our enemies or to use the metaphor in Jeremiah, to remove the fire. He takes us through the fire unscathed. He takes us through the flood. And we can claim that promise as well. The fourth thing that I see is that this covenant meal promises our security despite those enemies. To sit down at the table is really to renew covenant with the Lord. And he never tires of telling us, look, I'm in covenant with you. I'm in covenant with you. I'm committed to you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And then the final thing that I see is implied in the words, prepare a table. I looked that up in the dictionary, and another meaning of that term, prepare, is to layer the table, to pile up the table, and that's why some versions, people wonder, why do they translate it a banquet, a lavish banquet? Well, it's because of that word, to pile up. God is not promised to give us just barely enough to get by. He gives us an overabundance, and you can claim that overabundance, whatever your needs are this morning. Here's how he words it in Ephesians 3.20. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So claim each one of those promises as you come to the table. We have a God who loves to be generous, who lavishly spreads our table. Father, we come to this table with anticipation. We come with joy, with faith, with hope that whatever needs that this congregation has, as they lift them up before you, that you are the shepherd who loves to provide. You can chase our enemies away, and we pray that you would do so, that you would encamp round about us with your angelic warrior hosts. Um, those who have financial problems or other issues, we just pray as they come, that in your lavish provision, you would, you would open up the windows of heaven in blessing them. Blessing with houses, with finances, with joy, with peace, with uh, whatever it is that they are coming to you with. And so to that end, I pray that you would set aside these common elements and that as we partake, you would quicken the gospel that is portrayed in these elements to our hearts by faith. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.